Hello, and welcome to the Austin Art Talk podcast. My name is Scott David Gordon, your host. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen, and I do hope you're enjoying the interviews I've been sharing. The focus of this podcast is on the interesting and creative people of Austin, Texas. As always, my intention is to have meaningful and in-depth conversations that I hope will be of value to you, the listener. They certainly are to me. I really love doing these interviews, and hopefully we can all figure out together how to better connect and support our local art communities and create opportunities and success for ourselves through conversations like these. You might have noticed, unlike many other podcasts, this one has no sponsors. For me, it's a passion project that I create and produce 100% on my own every week. Please consider helping to support me and my continued efforts by becoming a patron of mine. Go to austinarttalk.com and click on the support tab to learn more. And if you really love an episode and have a feeling it might benefit someone else, please share it with them. It might be exactly what they need to hear. Thanks to those who follow and interact with me on Instagram, at Austin Art Talk. That is by far my favorite social media platform. I post daily about local art events and try to support and share the work of previous podcast guests, along with other interesting people, art, and podcasts that I find which you might enjoy. On to the rest of the show. Dave McClinton is an artist and graphic designer who, after doing design work for decades, decided to funnel his life experiences, ideas, and emotions into often provocative, graphically intricate, and colorfully rendered, digitally collaged portraits and landscapes. The artworks aim to tell stories, start hard conversations, and to help visually define current and historical black identity and inner life. I'm so thankful to Dave for what he shared and that we could have this first candid conversation, and I hope many more like it. I encourage you to check out his artwork and the links in the show notes to dig more into the subjects we addressed and use his work to spur more productive discussions like this. Here is Dave. Okay, Dave. Well, thanks for being on my podcast. Absolutely. I've been looking forward to talking to you because I really love your work. It's Thank you. really beautiful and poignant and... It triggers for me a lot of questions about the meaning of your work and kind of the implications of, I don't know, I don't want to say this. I'm going to start over. No, I think you're going, I think it's, I think that's going in a good direction because it's the questions. Like I've always sort of thought that the art wasn't finished until someone sees it and reacts to mm, it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, so I might have a piece that I really like, that I'm really happy with. I think it says what it needs to say, but until someone sees it, and reacts positively or negatively, it's not finished. Yeah. So in a lot of ways, all the viewers are like my my team members kind of. It's like, okay, now it's finished. Now, because I've had to explain it, because I've seen someone react to it, now the piece is finished. So yeah. I, I know where you were going with that. Like talking okay. about my work might provoke a question or cause a, cause a reaction. So to me, that's when it's like, okay, good. That, that finally happened. So now that piece is considered cooked and done. Yeah, that's the ideal, right? I mean, maybe that's why anybody creates art, right? Probably, yeah. Yeah, I guess it's the same thing if you're a musician. You want your songs heard. Yeah. You know what I mean? You want your movies seen. You you know, and me, I want people to... It's almost like I want to be asked the question. Even even if it's uncomfortable, it's like I want people to look at it and go, okay, what what are you doing? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, and, and like you talk about, you want to help create this... You want to visually define identity, Right. It, well, it, as specific, you know, specific to me. So, um, and when I say me, I'm talking about, I mean, I don't feel like I'm representing all black people or even all black men, but I have, I've been on, I've been in this country and I've been alive long enough to where I've experienced 
just about every aspect of being a black male. Yeah. I've experienced the stereotype. I've experienced the oppression. I've experienced the racism. I've experienced the uh, positive stereotype because there's things, you know, there's things that happen that you can take advantage of or at least accept and like not, okay, I'm not going to overcorrect there because that benefits me. Yeah. Right. right? So, um, so to say that I'm speaking for black men is probably going too far, but I can certainly talk about my experience and you know and I do realize that my experience as a black man in Texas is probably pretty different versus someone from South Central LA, someone from Louisiana, someone from New York, but we all have these touch tones. They're like, mm-hmm. okay, you know what it's like yeah. when a cop's takes a couple of turns and keeps following you you know what it's like when you walk into a jewelry store and suddenly everybody's there to help you like you know what it's like when you get followed through a local grocery store because yeah. someone doesn't trust you, someone thinks you're gonna start you know shoplifting or whatever so it's those those things that i want to get across that i guess i just i want the questions but i also want to have the conversation i love the idea that you and i we may not have ever talked about race Mm-hmm. You know, and especially if we don't like, we kind of know each other now a little bit, but imagine all the conversations that I've had about race, about gender as well, with complete strangers. I never would have had those conversations if it hadn't been for the art. Yeah. So that's kind of amazing, actually. Yeah, it you is. Know, that I would talk to a 65 a year old white woman in Dallas about race. Like, when is that conversation going to just <laughs> happen out of the blue, you know? So, yeah. and, but it was all because of the artwork. So, um, yeah, I guess sometimes I worry that I'm putting too much pressure on it, that mm. I'm saying, oh, this art's, this is why I'm doing it, like this big, this big reason. This mission. Um, right, yeah, mission, yeah. Sometimes it does feel like a mission, and sometimes I feel like that word is a little too strong until I get out there in the world and when I start having these conversations, it really does feel like a mission. It feels like this is a worthy thing I'm doing because we're having some wild, tense, yeah, <laughs> uh, difficult conversations that, again, never would have happened, I don't think. Yeah, I definitely want to get to some of those conversations yeah, yeah. that especially you had at the um, art fair in Dallas. But I just thought maybe for someone that's listening right now that has no idea who you are, like how would you describe your work? So there's a couple of different bodies of work, but let's we'll, we'll talk. I'll we'll split it between, um, say, landscapes and cultural. We'll call it cultural. So the cultural work is faces and bodies, and it's about uh, racial identity. It's about beauty standards. It's about code switching, which you know, it's about elements of that all black people are familiar with, where you have to be a different person in public or a different person at work or a different person than you are from when you're at home or with your friends or in your, with your family. Is that what code switching is? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe I'm yeah, yeah. so ignorant. I'm you're sorry. Right. <laughs> no, it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That's so, so to, in other words, to switch up your behavior to fit in, right. Just to make things easier for yourself. Right. Um, that's why I respect, uh, I think it's uh, Ryan Coogler, the director. Yeah. No code switching with that brother. He does not. He is just who he is all the time. But anyway, side yeah, note. Yeah, yeah. Side note. Um, so that's what the art is about to me. It's And it's also about, there are elements where I touch on colonialism. I touch on slavery. I touch on lynching. I touch on violence in general. Um, that violence can be psych- psychological, emotional, as well as physical. Um, and I also like to talk really metaphorically about our black bodies as beasts of burden, 
as as like foundational elements. So some of the some of the photographic elements I use are almost always structural. So there's a lot of cement, a lot of concrete, a lot of asphalt, a lot of wood. And um, these are all photos that you take photos in of your textures, life right, that, right, of things yeah, you that see. I, right. So that I'll use those textures to build out skin tone and skin texture and even hair because while you look at the image and you absolutely see the racial element, there's that slightly deeper level that if someone asks me the question, I don't tell them all the time, but if somebody asks me the question, then I can get into bodies as, you know, beasts of burden, as I said, or structural things. Because the metaphor there is this country is built on our backs, um, at least until what, maybe Louisiana Purchase and then a little bit beyond that. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. then it, and then it was um, that it was built on our backs cheaply rather than freely. But anyway, let's, let's not get into specifics of history. Yeah. I'll probably get a year wrong or something. Okay. <laughs> but uh, so yeah, so so the art is taking on those things. But then you know, like I said earlier, like until there's a reaction, who knows what people would think? Somebody just might walk past the art and think, "Oh, there's a portrait of a of a black man." Mm-hmm. And if that's all they think, well, then it didn't really do what it needed to do, did it? Yeah. When someone looks at it and goes, okay, wait a minute, why? What's going on with the cotton or the noose? What's going on? And then they circle back to me and have a conversation about, okay, now, now we're talking. Now we're, now the work has actually done something. So the word mission, sometimes it fails. You know, sometimes it doesn't hook the, hook the person, the viewer. Yeah, and, and these people that you're creating are not literal portraits of a person. Right, right. That is that is a, an odd thing sometimes. Uh, so I'll use different facial features from different sources. So, you know, an eye from a different face, a nose from a different face, a mouth from a different face. And um, often what's been happening more and more lately is I've been using my own face. So, Mm. you know, we all have a really nice phone or a camera on our phone, right? So if I need a profile of a nose or a frowning brow or, a you know, an exaggerated mouth, exaggerated lips, I'll just take a photo of my own face because I'm going to import it into Photoshop and create a brand new face anyway. What that also affords me the ability to do is I can invent exaggerated features. I can make a statement about widespread noses. I can make a statement about oversized lips and things Mm -hmm. like that. So things that were typically used to vilify us, I can create them in a way and put a spirit behind it that is filled with pride and not shame or regret. Um, I love doing that. I love exaggerating these features because in my mind, I'm creating something beautiful, and I'm, I'm honoring what I see as beautiful, even though society at large, for the longest time, would vilify those things. So, yeah, so the people that you see, the bodies that you see are all completely invented from sometimes as many as 10 to 12 different sources. Wow. It seems you're, you're so masterful at creating a face that looks real. Well, it's parts. I yeah, mean, yeah. So it's, it's, it is... The proportions it, and everything. It's, yeah, and that's... So I have these... Um, I've gotten pretty good where I could actually just get into Photoshop and start drawing a profile that I want. And I know, you know, it's, it's just like drawing with a pencil. It's the same, the same premise. Um, and once I have that profile of the head done, then, okay, then I'm going to bring in the ear. And now I'm going to exaggerate that. And now I'm going to bring in a photo of asphalt because I want that to be the hair. And now I'm going to bring in some leather or a football or a basketball and take a photo of that. And that's going to be the skin. Mm. And now I'm going to, oh, I don't like the nose. So let me shoot my nose and exaggerate that. Or let me, let me pucker, take a photo of my mouth and, and bring that in. So it's, it's like, uh, 
I'm, you know, I can, I create the foundation and then the personality of whatever it is I'm trying to get across, whether it's beauty or anger or pride, I'll try to illustrate through these different pieces. And it's really interesting. Sometimes the eyes are oversized. Sometimes there's two left eyes Hmm. looking in the same direction. Sometimes I'll use a a forward facing eye on a profile and that sort of has this Egyptian look. Yeah, Yeah. Um, it's all built, it's all created to make a statement about race and how people view us and how we look back. So I love the idea that a lot of my work, the eyes are looking right back. Mm-hmm. Um, and to me, that's about defiance because my mother and father told me stories. You know, they grew up in Texas in the 40s and 50s, and they would tell me stories about how, you know, in Seguin, Texas and New Braunfels, Texas, you, you didn't make direct eye contact. Mm. Like you could get in trouble for making direct eye contact with a white man. So that's why a lot of my work is direct eye contact. And that, that's, an, it's, it's, that's a sort of an homage to that. Yeah. Um, I just, I feel horrified that anyone would have to go through that. I mean, that was not that long ago. No. You know, I just cannot believe that. I mean, I mean, I believe it. I just, it just <laughs> makes me so sad that people had to go through that. Yeah. It's, uh, it's interesting that, um, so one of the things that I, that I, that I often tell people is that, while a lot of things have happened to me, that level of it on a societal level hasn't happened to me. You know, I grew up in, you know, the 70s and 80s. And, and, and so while racism was always there and it still is, it is nowhere near the level that hmm. my folks had to go through and certainly my grandfolks had to go through. But um, that like so generational trauma. I was trauma. just going to say, like that gets passed along because the way I was raised in a way that... Uh, it, like it, it was this interesting thing of I was raised to you can go out and do and accomplish anything you want to accomplish. But also what was passed along was don't stick your neck out. Stay out of trouble. Don't go too far. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that that's a weird thing to be told both things. One, yeah, is, yeah. one is like, hey, watch your back. Don't mess around. Don't get out there and get in trouble. But also get out there and do whatever you want to do in your life. Like, yeah, all right, so uh, which, which hard one? Hard to reconcile. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it, it was, certainly that stuff gets passed along, right? So yeah, whatever whatever happened to my grandfather got passed to my father, and whatever happened to him got passed to me, and then that's, yeah, that's a perpetual thing that I don't think people necessarily think about, that it's generational. And these things have been passed down for the last 400 years yeah, yeah. since the first, what, slave ship landed in the United States. Yep. And it's yep. like, and, and we expect... And we're surprised that things are the way they are. Right. And you it's and that I think, people have anger. Yeah. Yeah. And you know? I think it's, it's one of those things like just now people are starting to talk about addiction as something that can be passed mm. along, you know, genetically. Or, you know, if, if you're the son of an alcoholic, you know, and you, you might get something passed along that way. Or if there's some sort of childhood trauma happened, sometimes that stuff gets passed along. Um, the idea that, no one's really circled around to talk about you know, yeah. w- w- the trauma of racism being passed from generation to generation. That seems to be, I don't know if that's talked about as much as, um, say, addiction is. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's just as strong. It's just as powerful. So, yeah, that's, a, that's an odd thing. I don't think I ever really compared racism to alcoholism before, yeah. or at least the trauma of those two things. I don't know that I've ever made that, uh, made that connection before. I just I think about your portraits that especially have text in them and it just like I read these texts and it's just like you know the ship's coming in with 250 people on right. it they're going to be for sale. Right. So yeah, I should talk about that. So so some of the things I use are historical advertisements for slaves, historical um 
posters that are advertising slaves, but then also advertise, they're like um, an APB for a runaway slave. There's yeah. a lot of those. Um, but, but as far as the ads go, they've always been staggering to me because if you took out the way that the slaves were talked about, the way these people were talked about, I should say people instead of slaves, the way these people were talked about yes, yes, is astonishing in that if you took out man or woman or you took out their name and put in lawnmower, chainsaw, mm-hmm. leaf blower, tool set, if you, took, if you took those out and put in actual products, it would read the exact same way. That's wild to me. The, the idea that a slave ad, if you remove the fact that it's people and put in that you're talking about maybe furniture, you're going to sell a washing machine and a couch, and you, you all you do is replace the nouns, mm-hmm. it sounds like a Craigslist ad. That they were so dismissed as actual humans is kind of crazy. And one thing that I just recently found out, I do a lot of research to, I want to make sure I'm using these words properly, the word likely was used a lot, and I never really knew mm. what that meant. Likely meant that they were likely to have offspring mm. that you would also own. So it was this way to sell a slave, use the word likely, and then now the, the potential slave owner thinks, oh, well, I'll buy, I'll buy those slaves, because chances are those five slaves will turn into seven or eight slaves. Yeah, it's, that's crazy. It's insane. Yeah. So, yeah, so so I, I've been using those elements in my work for, for quite a while. Um, I should also mention I'm a, I'm a graphic designer. Yeah, so I want I kinda, to talk about that, too. I like, how gravitate. do you know how to do all this awesome work? <laughs> Right. So, yeah, I'll, I'll just bring up, like, the, the profession. Because I love typography, it's this natural fit. I Like, I'm attracted, despite the horrific things they say, they're interesting just in their function just in how the letter forms look and and so so I'm sort of drawn to the mm. the typographical elements but then also repulsed by the message so then to me those two things fighting each other makes for a really potentially um evocative piece of art um and one of the things I've also been doing that I don't really point out specifically is I've been rewriting some of mm. them because they they are so crazy so I've actually been writing my own slave ads. Really? And using that text, using old school fonts and rendering it the way those the original posters and original ads looked. And I've just been burying that text and even some of my landscapes and some of the some of the portraits and the body work that I'm that I'm doing. Um it's just sort of a I don't think joke's the right word, but it's just sort of this little secret inward thing that I like that yeah. that I'm sort of subverting what the meaning of those things are, you know, and, and the idea that that it, it puts you in a weird mind space to like, okay, so today I'm going to create a piece and I'm going to write some text that markets the free use and sale of slaves. And I'm going to put that in my artwork. That is a mind trip, let me tell you. Mm-hmm. Um, but I like doing it because it helps me get on the other side of that because it's so far it's so close, right? We had this conversation earlier. Like, slavery wasn't that long ago. Physically, I feel far from it, right? So it's a way for me to try to tie into that emotion and to try to understand, okay, what is this? What were these people thinking? What were the slaves thinking? What were the slave owners thinking? Like, how? How did that even happen? How did two human beings find each other in this impossibly insane situation, you know? And obviously, one had power and one didn't. So the, the, just playing with these words and playing with the terminology and trying to understand the meaning in those words, 
has been a bit of a bit of a mind trip, actually. Yeah. Am I correct in saying that your landscapes, which you'll be showing soon, are? I think you said in one of your interviews they're almost trying to communicate the same thing in a different way. In a different way, right? So. Um, one of the things that started happening with the landscapes is that people would see them like so basically let me explain what those are so yeah. they are um, crumpled up paper butcher paper tissue paper craft paper that I sort of form into these mountain like structures and then I take a photo of them pull that into Photoshop and apply textures of actual mountains and actual rocks and actual t- you know mm-hmm. um, different textures in nature and create these vistas so to speak air, and- qu- air quotes vistas and, and there's pe- like a physicality to Absolutely. that that's different than probably sitting at your computer yeah, you know, yeah. in a way. Yeah, right. yeah. There's the, actually, it's weird that those, those 2D prints start off as 3D sculptures. Yeah, yeah. Um, and what started to happen is people would see these things and it would remind them of a real place. They would go, oh, that looks like Half Dome. Or, oh, that looks like the Flatirons in Colorado. Mm-hmm. So that started to mess with me a little bit. I was like, okay, so I'm crumpling up things on my kitchen table. And it's reminding people of places they've physically been. Yeah. So now I started to make the metaphorical leap of mountain ranges and canyons and things as scars on the land. Mm-hmm. So now, okay, so now I'm making this weird um, uh, metaphorical leap to let's let's use this eruption of of stone and granite coming up through the earth, and let's use that as a visual metaphor to talk about the eruption in the lives of, of, of people of color, like how we've been scarred, how we've been damaged, how we're just this thing that people don't even think about. And some of that comes from the ideas. Um, I don't know if people are familiar with the, um, the Vietnam Memorial by Maya Lin. If you look at it from the sky, it looks like this black scar mm, yeah. um, from the sky. And that was her intent that she wanted it to look like a scar on the land, which is a wow. beautiful, beautiful, um, very poignant way to think of Vietnam. So, so that 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 sort of visual metaphor has yeah. always been in my mind. So, the the idea that these mountains can also represent scars across this country is part of what's happening with the landscape work too, or even like a resource. Like people were used as a resource. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah. So, the idea that um, and you know we talked about resources. We also talked about structural elements. So, you know having a country built on the backs of of you know black people people you know we go and we mine resources we mine granite to build buildings so there's a very interesting metaphor between those two things mm-hmm. um and it's so if 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 i'm guilty of anything with my work that there's probably far too many metaphors in each piece to talk about <laughs> yeah. so um and you then know, there's the things that people perceive on right. their own. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You never would have thought of. Right. You no, know, absolutely. And it's it's one of those things that I don't necessarily want to explain everything away. Yeah. I mean, we've all had that happen where like we we really like a song and then you discover what the actual lyric is or right. <laughs> or you hear an interview and the songwriter tells you what the song was really about and it kind of ruins the song for you. Yeah. Yeah. Um so I'm kind of wary of explaining every little thing because I love the idea of people just staring at a piece and kind of walking away with their own their own take on mm-hmm. it well what are what are some memorable interactions that you had at the um is it the other art fair yeah, the other Dallas, the other art recently? fair a couple of weeks ago because you Dallas. said you know you made a comment on your blog about how you felt like the whole time you were defending and explaining my blackness is what you said 
And you yeah. came away with, you said that that constant examination of yourself and your work was actually helpful in a way. Yeah, it was like, um, it was almost like a, um, a dissertation. It was, you know, at the end of all your schoolwork and you have to encapsulate it in this, with this one particular document. Um, so I had some of my work is maybe all of it. If you knew, if, if you know what it's all about, but some of it, you don't have to know anything when you see something like a noose or you see a bursting cotton ball as hair on a black woman or a black man, or you see a noose around the neck of a black man. Some of my art has that. Or the the slave posters that we talked about. There's not a whole lot of... There's nuance, but there's not a whole lot of necessary explaining what that work is about. So, as I'm standing there in my booth at the art fair... I'm the arts, you know, behind me, and I'm looking yeah. out at the crowd, and as yeah. people walk by, I'm sort of gauging looks, looks on faces, and I'm seeing winces. I'm seeing people wince. I'm seeing people turn away. Oh, wow. And some people just don't even, they just kind of see me, and they're not even looking at me. They can peripherally see that I'm here, and they walk up to me while staring at the piece, shaking their head, and then they just say, that's, that's, really, that's really hard to look at. Sometimes that's all it is. Yeah. Sometimes, and I was told this a couple of times, um, people walked up to me and said, that's really offensive to me. Mm. So as an artist, you know, you kind of, you kind of want that on some level, yeah. you know, you know, cause if everybody just loves what you did, then what did you really do? And you want to start these hard conversations. Yeah, you, you do want to yeah. have this, the conversation that's always been a goal of mine. So, you know, you might've been getting praised for a couple of hours of people walking by saying, Hey, your work's great. And then someone comes along and says, "You were, you know, I'm offended by your work." So you had to sort of, I had to sort of um, steal myself and go, "All right." Mm. And then I would ask the question. It was a hard question for me to ask. Well, tell me, tell me what's, uh, what do you find offensive about it? And this one woman in particular, she was looking at a piece where it's a, a black person and they have cotton, like a cotton, uh, a buckeye cotton on their head as, as hair. As, it's almost like a headpiece, or it could be perceived as a crown as well, depending on mm. how you want to work the metaphor. Um, she said that it offended her, and I asked her why, and she said she thought it was glorifying that era. So I said, exactly. Because what I want to do is I want you to take in all that legacy, I want you to take in everything that means when you see a black person and cotton, and I've married them together in the piece. One is the cotton is the person, the person is the cotton, and we all know what that legacy is. I want you to take all that in, but I want you to take one more step, and I want you to look at the look on this person's face. I want you to look into those eyes. I want you to see the expression on their face, and the expressions to me, and I don't think this is mistakable at all, you see these... uh, the expressions on these faces, I have probably four or five pieces that do this, and all of the expressions are about defiance, they're about pride, they're about beauty. None of those faces look like they're defeated. Or oppressed. Or, or oppressed. Yeah. None of those faces look like they're shamed. There's no shameful look in any of those faces. And almost, in fact, every last one of them, it's direct eye contact. Mm-hmm. So to me, it's almost like, yeah, look at this, this country. You know, we've got slave owners on money. So let's yeah. let's talk about it. So yeah, I'm I'm talking about the glorification of that era because it's still all around us. It's still everywhere. And look at that prideful look looking at you right in your eye. So when I would when I would explain it that way, more often than not, 
I could see, you know, you can tell somebody's, their mind's reeling because they can't focus on anything. Their eyes are yeah. just darting around. <laughs> <laughs> like, like this happened like with, with like three times with um, three complete, the, you know, three different women and their eyes were just darting all over the place. And I could tell, I was like, I don't know if that landed. I don't know. I don't know if she's yeah. buying what I'm saying. You might have to process. Um, right, right. So, yeah, that, that would be, I would love to, uh, that'd be interesting. I'd love to, to be able to circle back with these women oh, like, yeah. like a week later and go, hey, what do you, what do you think now? So, so, so that happened a lot. Like, so, and it wasn't always that tense, but sometimes mm-hmm. it would be like, hey, that's really hard to look at. What were you thinking? What, what's, what's this about? Either way, I still had to explain what it was. And doing that for four days, <laughs> you know, we had a, it had a, a preview Thursday. It was a, yeah, Thursday night preview. And then it was um, Friday afternoon, Friday night. Then it was Saturday morning to Saturday night. And then it was all day Sunday. So four days in yeah, a row. That's intense. Of having to explain myself and having to explain the work and having to talk about race and talk about how I felt about race and what it did to my life and what it did to my parents and, and ask questions. How do you feel about it? So th- imagine doing that for four days. It was fantastic because now I feel like my explanations of my work are bulletproof. I was just going to say, that'll sharpen you up. It's, it, it's, I really do feel like how I talk about it and think about my work is bulletproof mm. because I got hammered yeah. for four days and it, it was just really intense and really gratifying. And the end of every night, you know, I'd go back to the hotel and it was just, just wanted to watch the dumbest, yeah. <laughs> most pointless thing on, you know what I mean? Like, man, I watched, you know what I watched? I watched High Lie. I don't know what that is. <laughs> it's the it's like the Cuban kind of like it, it look kind of looks like um, a gigantic game of of racquetball except oh, okay. they're using these okay. big <laughs> baskets. I'm watching that on the internet. Like, yeah, this is, this is exactly what I need right here. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> um. So yeah. So you know, and then you'd have to wake up and get your coffee. Like, all right, here we go again. Back to school. Back wow. to defending ourselves. So yeah, it it really was. If that's all I got out of it. It was totally worth it to go there and put myself in those crosshairs and have those have those conversations. And like I said, I think the the term, the phrase defending myself, defending my work was an apt usage of that phrase because it really did sort of strengthen my resolve of how I feel about what I'm doing. I'm wondering also about, you know, who bought your work at that fair. And it makes me think about Deborah Roberts and how she's trying to be a lot more intentional these days about who actually gets her work and where it hangs because she wants, especially like her, she was saying her George Stinney work, she wants people to see that. She doesn't want it to be at a cocktail party in someone's house forever. Right. You know, so like how do you control or not control who you sell your work to, you know, and who are you comfortable having it up in their house, you know? Like, so that came up a lot. So it came up with uh, a lot of people would say something like, so well, I guess let's go ahead and just get specific. Okay. So, so, yeah, so white people <laughs> yeah. would say, that's beautiful. I love what it is, but I would be worried about what people would think of me because it could go the other way. So, so all of my work, if it's in a black person's house, you know where they're coming from. The art is to speak to identity and legacy, and that's what it's there for. The idea that if a white person bought certain pieces of mine that uh it could it could go the other way it's like are they their family former state masters <laughs> right right and right just like reminiscing or? yeah yeah and i remember like at a at a west austin studio tour probably three years ago i have a piece of uh 
of a young black man. It's almost all black, and his suit is like spun gold, mm. and his necktie is a noose. It's hard to see, but when you walk up to it, you can see it. And there was this uh, maybe a 50-plus white woman staring at it. And I'm kind of 20 feet away, and I'm just kind of watching her. And she's just staring at it. And then for, for a good 10 minutes, and then she walks away. She comes back an hour and a half later with who I would assume would have found out later it was her daughter. Mm-hmm. Probably 20, 25 years old. They walk in, and they go right to that piece, and they stare at it. And I see them having conversations. Wow. I see them talking about it. And I can see, I, would, I imagined that they were probably thinking, oh, I bet they want it. But they're discussing what what's yeah. going to happen. What's going to happen when the friends come over? Yeah. What's going to happen when 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 Aunt Mary comes over? And now you've got to, <laughs> this or is image. he going to sell it to us? Right, right, right. Or yeah, whatever. you're right. Knows, right. So you know, I kind of stroll over, and she just looks at me, and she goes, you know, essentially yeah. explain this piece. So I I talked about um, how it's a direct stare, uh, how it's um, the notion of a suit and a noose to me is that notion of respectability versus criminality. You know, the we've all heard the, I don't know if we all have, but I know there was a story in the news about, I believe it was a Harvard professor that was arrested at his own home because a neighbor saw a black oh, man yeah, yeah. and just assumed, like, oh, there's a black man in my neighborhood. He must be a criminal. Um, so the idea of the noose and suit go together to me because no matter how respectable no matter what level of success or, or or societal respect a black man gets to, there's always that cloud of he's less than, he's a criminal, you know, affirmative action probably got him where he is. There's always something, right? It's never just, oh, he – and even if it's a compliment, the compliment might be, oh, well, he's eloquent or he's, you know, he's so well-spoken. Right. Like there's always something. It can't just be – the successful black man. So, you know, I went through, you know, I talked about this with her and she says, uh, you know, she explained to me a little bit of her history about, you know, she's, you know, like fifth generation Texan and had her own feelings and arguments and, and, uh, you know, how she felt about how black people were being treated in this country and certainly in this state. And she wanted the piece because she said it would help her Hmm. It would help her explain how she feels about things. And it would help her. She said that that art would be this perfect talking point to explain how black people probably feel. Yeah. And I, because I made this joke and like, so she gives me her credit card and I'm doing the whole little, little zip zap thing or whatever. I kind of made the joke. I go, well, you know, where are you going to hang this? Because this isn't really breakfast nook art. And we had a little chuckle. (laughs) And she goes, goes, oh yeah, this is going, this is going to be in my living room. There are some people that I need, that that need to have, we need to have these conversations. And she goes, these conversations will never happen unless, she goes, this art is going to be a fulcrum. And I was like, well, ma'am, more power to you. <laughs> Thank you for supporting. <laughs> Thank you for supporting yeah. the arts. Thank you for supporting me. And uh, good luck with your uh, future conversations. Mm-hmm. So so getting back to that original question you asked, it's, I shouldn't say I don't care. That's not quite accurate. I would say that if, you're, if we're having a conversation about the art, I can get a sense of why you want something. Yeah. Um, even through emails. Sometimes uh, I've had people buy things just via email, and I, I can tell. You know, I can tell where they're coming from. I haven't sold a piece yet that I felt weird about. I did do a commission way, way back. I don't really do the direct commissions like that anymore. But I did do a commission where this person kept dictating the work. 
and I was like, okay, what am I doing here? I'm, I'm, I'm creating work, emotional work, about the history of black people in this country, and this person's telling me how to do it. So it's like, all right, yeah, that's this, this will be the last one. Yeah, right. Like, I'm not doing that anymore. But yeah, so I feel like it hasn't come up yet. It hasn't come up in a negative way yet. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. I feel like everybody that's bought the art, black or white, man or woman, it's been a, a positive uh, experience. The the need or the desire for the art has been a very positive reaction. And yeah, it's, 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 it's interesting. I, I guess one day it'll come up where not. I feel like maybe they're not buying this for the right reason. This, you know, and then what do I do? You know, we're, you know, I'm here for the mission, but I'm also here to make a living. So it's, yeah. that'll be yeah. very interesting. That'll be, do I, do I cave or not? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I love that reason that that woman gave you. Yeah. That I was mean, stunning. That, was, that, like, was that stunning. inspires me. Yeah. I mean, it's really cool. The fact that she was buying it to force conversations in her family is and in her social circle. Mm. That's just staggering to me. Well, this all makes me wonder, I know we usually do this at the beginning of the interview, but I'm just kind of wondering like, if you could, if you want to share any of your kind of origin story around how you became an artist sure. or how you avoided being an artist. For a long time. <laughs> um, okay, so, so I touched on it earlier. I, so I'm a graphic designer. It's what I do for a living. And when I was in school, I took as many studio art classes as I did design classes. And having been raised by Staff Sergeant J.T. McClinton... <laughs> <laughs> I made the practical choice to go with graphic designs because that, that's how I was going to make a living. Yeah. I was just, you know, my dad's a very practical man. Do do, do what you got to do, but make a good decision to, you know, make sure you're, you're going to take care of yourself. Because I probably, if I had been left to my own devices, I probably would have gone art because that's kind of where my heart was. Mm-hmm. Even though I do love design, I love logo design and poster design and web design. I love it. But it's not even close to how much I love art. Mm. So that's saying something like, if I was a designer forever and I never did art, I would be completely happy. So that ought to tell you just yeah. how completely happy yeah. and fulfilled yeah. I am when, what I, kind when of, I'm making the art. What kind of art were you doing in school, in studio art um, It was a lot really, of... Uh, really liked. It was a mix between... I loved doing these um, really harsh... Uh, charcoal drawings of the body and of my own face. Mm. Um, but then also, I was doing a lot of acrylic paint. I was doing a lot of uh, abstract work. So it's weird that I, I was I had I had two different two different avenues. I was I was working in. And I loved them both. And you're kind of doing that now, kind of yeah, to, to some degree. Thing. Yeah, yeah, I am. But I had these um, uh, Bradford Lawton, who's a graphic designer, a fantastic graphic designer. He was also my drawing teacher. So I was really influenced by, he has this really hard, specific line when he was drawing, but then I was also influenced by my painting teacher named Carol Greer. So that's who I was doing the abstract work with. So I had these two mentors, you know, a man and a woman too. So that was also, it was great to have a male mentor and a female mentor. Um, So, and there were just two completely different bodies of work, which is really interesting. Um, but then also, I was also trying to bang out a design portfolio so I could get a job after graduation. So that's how it all, that's how the the need to create started. But let me let me take a, let's take a little step back before that. Yeah. When I was a kid, I had no idea what being an artist or a graphic designer meant. All I knew was that I loved comic books, not to read them as much as just to look at them. Yeah. I loved the dot patterns. 
And I loved when the Sunday paper, when the the, yeah. f- the funnies would come out of we called them funnies, comics, whatever. When the print jumped and was out of register, yeah, yeah. that was fascinating to me because it would be like, oh, the the yellow dots are a little out of you know, it yeah, was yeah, a little yeah. out of sync. And I was trying to wrap my brain around, well, are they printing the yellow first and then like you know, I would always try to figure that out. And then I got the sense that all the black was printed at once, and the black snapped everything together. Um, a little glimpse into the matrix. Right, <laughs> right, right. And in and even this is gonna get really nerdy, I would love seeing the the color bars. Like if you take apart a cereal box. No, I did t- I am exactly the same. Right. Way. So you take a, you take apart the cereal box and you see the color bar yeah. and the registration marks where all the cut marks are, the crop marks are supposed so they can put the box together. All that stuff fascinated me. Yeah. I just didn't know there was a career behind it. Yeah. So anyway, um found my way to graphic design, was pretty happy in the career, but I always had it back in my head with no specificity, oh, I'll be an artist eventually. But I never knew how. I never had a plan. And then Trayvon Martin happened. And then Mike Brown happened. And then Philando Castile and so many other names that I could think of. And I started thinking, well, I'm really good at creating images. I'm really good at selling an idea. Mm -hmm. Maybe I should be selling bigger ideas. Maybe I should be creating things that sell how I feel about the world. For yourself, yeah. Right. Maybe I should do that. But it wasn't until the realization hit me that I felt ashamed that these new names sparked me when I already had a list of old names. Right. I remember reading about Emmett Till when I was a little kid in Jet Magazine, and I saw the photo, you know, the mother, the, the photo that his mother intended the world see. Um, and I heard about, I'd read about George Stinney. I'd read about Medgar Evers. I'd read all these stories about all these people who were murdered and lynched and, and just taken from us. So it was a deep shame of knowing all my life I had this ammo mm. that I hadn't used. You know, it was like, yeah, yeah. like, what the hell am I doing? I had the fire and the the ideas and the emotion way before I actually started making the art. I, it was just the momentum of life just sort of took over, I guess. Yeah. So when I, when I kind of had that shameful realization, it was like, okay, I'm all in. Like this art is going to be bananas. Mm-hmm. Like I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to be as provocative and as evocative and as, as controversial. Maybe I don't even agree with that word. Um, but I'm going to just push the envelope and, and crank this art out. And it just so happens that because I'd been a graphic designer for so long, when it was time to pick up a tool, it was easier to just start using the computer than it was to, oh, let me go retrofit my place and go buy a bunch of charcoal and paint and all that stuff. And, you know, you can't bring that into, you need a studio to do that. But the computer's right there. Like Mm -hmm. it's just sitting right there. So I, it was just easy for me to, that's how the digital collage became my primary, um, medium because this technology was just there you know if i if i had started making art 20 years ago chances are I, I would have even though the computer was around i probably would have used traditional media yeah and you've already mastered the computer and photoshop yeah right? yeah i was already yeah this the skill set was already there so it was just really simple and easy for me to use that skill set to tell the story i wanted to tell and in my mind even though I do have a chip on my shoulder because I'm aware of how the art world might perceive digital work versus mm-hmm. an actual painting. I yeah. do have this this sort of imposter syndrome of like, oh, are they going to think I'm not a real artist because I'm using yeah. this technology? Yeah. Um, I am very, very aware of that. But I'm also 
I kind of don't care. I mean, I just told you I cared, so now I'm lying to you and telling you that I kind of don't care. <laughs> yeah. but, so, so, but the other side of it is that it's more important, the story is more important. The, what the work is about is more important. The end result. Right, the right, right, right. And, and what conversation we're going to have and how people react to it is so much more important than whether it was a pixel or a paintbrush. Yeah. So that's how I sort of justify it in my head and I have that argument ready whenever someone questions, right. you know, whenever somebody has that question. And you're incorporating your photography, which is... Yeah, yeah. There's a, there's a lot of stuff that goes on. So each piece probably has maybe 35, 40 different images. Mm. And um, I'm habitually taking photos of textures constantly. You know, leaves on the ground that are sitting a certain way, clouds, uh, tree bark. Um, mm-hmm. One of my favorite textures is in the building I work in, they ripped up the carpet to put down new carpet. And for a week... That's the swirl of glue yeah. on the floor. Yeah. I, was, I took a ton of those photos, and I used that to create skin textures in my portraits and in the bodywork. And when I say bodywork, I mean, you know, not just a head, you know, like all the way down to the legs and feet and arms. Yeah, it's just the, the, the technological ease of capturing these textures that I can then turn around and use in my work is just, it was just there. It was just an easy, simple mm-hmm. transition that I didn't even have to think about. And I also can sort of shut off the world when I'm doing that. Yeah. You know, I can listen to music or listen to have the Godfather on in the background, to yeah. <laughs> jazz, whatever it is. And I'm just in my world, looking at this screen, creating my work. And it's just such a happy, safe mm. place to be. I love it. Yeah. And that was, what, four or five years ago? That was, yeah, yeah. So I started showing, I started creating work five years ago. I started showing work uh, four years ago. My first time was uh, East Austin Studio Tour 2015. It was the first time I ever showed work. Was um, that scary? Or? It was terrifying because yeah. I, you know, I could sell a logo forever. I can, I can explain to a client what their website is about very easily. But this was like, okay. I've got a, <laughs> I'm using obsidian for hair, leather for a face, and I'm illustrating a black person with exaggerated facial features. Like, okay, now I got to sell this. Now I got to not sell it, but explain it. Yeah. I have to defend it and talk about my work, and that's very, very personal. So, it's the, vulnerable. It was definitely vulnerable, and it was scary, might be too strong a word, I, but I was nervous and I was yeah. worried about how people were going to react. But now, um, like I said, after Dallas, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm ready to go. And how has your work evolved in that last in the five last five years? Um, it has. Uh, I guess things have gotten simpler. So ah. before, I was. It was all about let me fill every nook and cranny, every inch, every area of the the artwork of the you know the surface. And now. It's more about focusing on the portrait, focusing on the person, focusing on the idea, and just using huge areas of empty color. Hmm. Um, again, as a graphic designer, I love negative space. I love the f- big, gigantic, flat area of pure color. So the earlier works are every inch is covered. Every inch of the – it's just texture everywhere. Now you can see things are getting sharper, and it's much more about the idea, whereas before it was about, ooh, if I can, I will. Yeah. Now it's like, okay, now every move I make is behind the idea. So I guess I've calmed down a bit over the years, and I'm much more focused on paying attention to just the idea. Yeah. Okay. I guess that's an evolution. Yeah. And where do you see it going? Do you feel like, do you see little inklings of where I, it might be going? I'm trying, I'm thinking of ways to get off the wall. I'm mm. thinking of ways of going 3D. Even if it's just 
the structure of the piece that ultimately is 2D, but how it's framed, how it's materials I'm printing on. One thing that I know that I'm actually doing now is I'm printing on, I'm printing monochromatic things. So my portraits and bodies monochromatically onto uh, plexi and then I'm painting under them. Oh, wow. I love the idea of layers and what that metaphor is. I'm real big on metaphor. I love playing with words. Yeah. So the idea that the discussion of race and beauty and justice, I think would be very easy for someone to say, well, that's a very complex, multi-layered. So there's the metaphor, right? Mm -hmm. So I love the idea of being able to look at skin and then look beyond the skin and look at what that next layer is and what that next layer is. So th- there's a lot of um, playing with materials. While I'm still, th- ultimately, the original idea is being created on the computer. Now I'm messing around with, once it's printed, what am I doing with that? So now I'm actually applying physical things to it. Um, that's going to take a bit before I'm happy with it. So that's that's probably a ways off before I have anything that I'm going to show in those in those areas. In terms of other things, I'm, I'm using multiple bodies a lot. So that's taking a lot of time to sort of compose multiple figures. Just about all the work is just a single person, yeah. almost all of it. Um, now I'm using, I'm doing, if I'm working on a piece now where there are seven different figures, all black men. Some look like they're fighting. Some look like they're running. Some mm. look like they're dancing. And I, again, metaphorically, I love how all those things kind of mean the same thing. You know, depending yeah. on depending on the situation that that a black man might find himself himself in. So another evolution is trying to combine more than one mood in a piece. You know, I want to show fear and adulation and pride and aggression and anger and even passivity. But you know, I want to so I want to have all those things in a single piece. So that's that's another place where I'm going, where I'm trying to convey more than one emotion because we all have more than one emotion so sometimes i'm worried sometimes i worry that the piece doesn't say enough sometimes you know what i mean so so i'm looking to find a way to convey as much as possible to connect with other people right but but also to to illustrate what that subject might be going through yeah to illustrate that i'm not just because okay so i the so the listener should know i'm six one 300 pound black man Sometimes I'm scared. Sometimes I'm sad. I'm not just the big black guy. So I want I want the art to show that black people are multifaceted in terms of their emotion, in terms of how they feel, in terms of going out in the world with confidence, having society beat you down a little bit. I want to convey all those things in a single piece. So I'm using it as like, so I said six figures in my mind. Those six figures are all the same person, mm-hmm. you know. So I'm that's so I'm trying to do. I'm trying to find ways to illustrate different emotions. So that's that's one place where, uh, or should I say, a second place where the work is um, evolving. In your, I think in your Pecha Kucha talk, you were saying that you have this constant sense of injustice. Is that? Can you elaborate on that? Yes. Yeah, so there's, and it's it's primarily because of technology that we all know everything that happens, right? And when I say we all, I'm talking about all of American society. But black people and brown people, and you could also say gay people, have always known in their community and always had the sense of inju- you know injustice. Um, so there are so many things I carry with me all the time. You know, you know, you read the story about um, with both them Jean in Dallas, yeah, and that's just. I mean, there's just so many of those. So I kind of walk around 
like those those thoughts and that that pain it's I should explain that it really is pain i don't I didn't know that person I didn't know um trayvon Martin personally, but I knew what happened, and what I mean by that is I've been the young black kid who it was assumed was a criminal, and just by happenstance and sheer luck. I didn't get shot when I was 16 running around the streets playing around with my friends. I've been in all those situations. I've had guns pulled on me by the police because I was just putting my keys in my pocket. Mm. You know, like when you get out of the car, it's just reflexive. You just put your keys in your pocket. Like you're not even, it's not even a thing you think about. But I had guns drawn on me and told, show me your hands. But, you know, like, like, and so you could have got shot. I could have got by shot. By a different cop. Yeah, yeah. So... When, so when I walk around with this sense of injustice, like that's always there. So whenever I see something that happens to someone else in maybe another state, it automatically gets mapped back emotionally in my mind to the thing that happened to me or mm. maybe almost happened to me. Yeah. So the things that I think people don't understand or misunderstand about me is that sometimes when I'm hanging out with friends or hanging out with peers, I can't help but make a joke or a comment about... <laughs> race because it is literally always there i mean it's not even i mean it's just always there like it's 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 an odd thing to constantly have that in your face all the time like it's it's heavy i think it's why why black men die sooner than everyone else it's just that that psychological weight is always there and sometimes i wish I wish I could explain to my friends what that's like. I wish they could know. You know, know, a lot of times something will happen to me, or I'll have a certain experience that kind of ruins the day, but then you go hang out with your friends, you don't want to bring them down. So, you know, for 10 or 15 minutes, I'm sitting there kind of down in the dumps while I'm trying to get over the crappy thing that just happened to me so we can just hang out. You yeah, know? and sometimes you have to diffuse that with a joke. Yeah, and sometimes you have to drop a joke on them, to, and sometimes it's just for me, just so I can have a little chuckle, take a deep breath, and all right, now now I can I can move forward or whatever. Or sometimes it's aggressive, too. Sometimes I crack the joke because I want to blow the steam off. I want to release that valve a little bit, so I'll crack a joke, or I'll say something, you know, bring up race in a, in a way that is comical or or clever or smart-ass in a certain way. Just so I can ease off the pressure and now I can hang out or now I can go to work or now I can go into that client meeting or now I can let that go. And I wish there was a way to convey to people, and maybe that's what I'm trying to do with the art, is um, what that constant pressure feels like. Because it is literally constant. Mm. I don't know if I answered your question or not. Yeah, I think you did. (laughs) I think you did. And I don't want to turn this around on me, but I just feel like reacting to what you're saying, it makes me think of how I haven't had to deal with things like that. I consider that, I I guess, a privilege. I mean, I've never looked at, I've never heard a story about a white man being shot and thought, oh man, that could have been me. I just don't, you know what I mean? Like, (laughs) I'm just, I'm I'm reacting what you're saying. I'm just thinking about it. So I have two, I hope I remember the second thing I was going to say. So the first thing I would say is to that end, there are elements of pride and embarrassment based on what black people do that we all that I've always I've I saw my parents and my aunts and uncles react whenever some black person a star a sports star a movie star a politician did something embarrassing or there was some sort of crime involving a black person 
I would hear my aunts and uncles and my parents go, oh, just they would just express this frustration of, yeah. oh, here's another example, and this is more fuel for the world to think this is what a black man is and this is what a black woman is. And like ruining it for everyone. Yeah, ruining it for everyone. And I've always kind of thought white folks don't have that. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, if, like when when y'all's when you, when Bernie Madoff got busted for ripping off the the world, how many people thought, oh man, he's making it bad for white folks. Oh, he's making it bad for white people. Whereas if if instead of Bernie Madoff, that was Bernie Jenkins, it, yeah. it would have been like, I oh, see, that's that's why you can't let black people on Wall Street. Like, like that would have been the yeah. narrative to a large society of people. So it's always been funny to me. Like, yeah, I guess you don't. I think you don't, it, you don't have that. You don't have to. No, worry I think about we that. do have it. I mean, there's plenty of white folks that make me embarrassed. <laughs> I mean, if it's like white supremacist or someone sure, like sure. that, it's like, oh man, they're really bringing us all down, right. making us look like okay. we're all okay. racist or something. Okay. You know. So I well, definitely, that's interesting. I, I never definitely really think about that sometimes. So okay, so good. So so that's that's good to know. And I guess I was, you know, that I can I can think about it in that way now. The other part, the other thing that I was going to bring up is the notion of what you were saying. It's hard for you to to necessarily understand where I'm coming from. Um, the same thing was happening to me as a result of the Me Too. Yeah, movement. right. So one of the things that happened is one of my one of my coworkers, we were talking about the Me Too stuff that was happening and all the cases that were happening, and she said, she just kind of muttered it under her breath, but she said, you know, it's all men. So what she was saying, in her experience, I don't think any man in that room had ever done or said anything to her. Everybody in that, that office loves her and respects her. Like like So she didn't mean all men, but she meant all men. Does that yeah, make sense? Yeah, yeah. So when she said it, I got this tightness in my chest and I felt angry about it. And the very first, the very next thought I had was, oh, shit. So how many times have I said all white people? Yeah. Like, oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> like, okay. Okay. I'm a horrible person. Dave McClinton is a horrible person. Um, so, I think you're being too hard on yourself. <laughs> so, so the idea that like, oh my God. So, okay. So now, all right, let's, let's start talking about empathy now. Let's start talking about how we all feel in this weird time that we're in yeah. where everybody's super sensitive, but maybe, maybe there's an end result. Maybe at the, on the other side of all this, you know, like I was, I think I told you this earlier, the idea that, you know, a 300 pound black man can feel just as vulnerable as a single woman driving across town late at night, that those yeah. two people, completely different people, physically, mentally, psychologically, emotionally, everything can both feel vulnerable. So now, now that man needs to talk to the woman to go, okay, tell me what's making you feel vulnerable and what can we do to, to mitigate that? And then she can think, okay, I didn't even think about what a black man would feel like, particularly in Texas, walking into a barbecue restaurant and all he sees is a bunch of cowboy hats. Like my grandfather said, once you hear ye, don't stick around for the hot. Like, ye, get out when you... (laughs) (laughs) So, and he said that joke before Richard Pryor said that joke, by the way. So I'm I'm crediting my grandfather. Um, So the idea of empathy and understanding how we all feel in certain situations, I think there's this tremendous opportunity um, chances are we're going to squander it, but there seems yeah, to be this right. this great opportunity for everybody to understand. You know, if I say all white people, I didn't mean all white people. It was a moment of frustration, 
if she said all men, she didn't mean all men, but it was a moment of frustration. And maybe her experiences have taught her that most of the time men are going to do or say something horrible. You know what I mean? Yeah. So in the idea that I got mad at it because I hadn't done anything makes me understand how a white man would get mad if black people were constantly bringing up race because that white man would think, well, I haven't done anything and we're not getting into privilege just yet. Yeah. But just that gut reaction of, wait, I haven't done anything. Mm-hmm. So I, I understand, I, I'm trying to understand that gut reaction of anger because I had it in a situation where, you know, that it, very easy to map gender yeah. versus yeah. race. It was a very easy metaphorical leap. So yeah, that was an interesting, an interesting moment. Yeah, no doubt. And I feel like I've also, like I told you before we start recording, I've been trying to look into these issues and try to gain some more understanding to help with the empathy and trying to like put myself in other people's shoes yeah. to, to try to understand these things yeah. myself, you yeah. know, cause I think it's important. I don't feel like this divisiveness is helpful at all. No, it's, um, it's really interesting. It's, um, I mean, you know, obviously it's no, uh, no stretch to say we're all guilty of, uh, just paying attention to our own echo chambers. I do have a sense of righteousness, though, when it comes to race. Yeah, okay. <laughs> um, there, I, I will admit that. I will admit that if someone wants to argue against how I feel about race in this country, I'm always going to feel like I'm right because there's ample evidence to the fact that I'm right. Yeah. You know, the idea that I heard someone talking the other day, or actually I read an article the other day about Thomas Jefferson. Oh, yeah, I've been learning about him. Too. Having He's, slaves, but yet writing the Declaration of Independence yeah. is the epitome of yes. hypocrisy. Yes. That's just, and the idea that he was a benevolent slave, like like a benevolent slave owner, do those words even go together? Well, and no. the, And they want to talk about his relationship with Sally as anything elevated above rape, you know? So yeah, so so I'll I'll take the Pepsi challenge on people people wanting to argue race any day. Um, so I do feel a sense of righteousness there, but in terms of certain aspects of politics, um, yeah, we're definitely guilty of uh, you know just paying attention to our own our own uh, little echo chamber. Yeah, and I think even you know the founding fathers who wrote the Constitution, and all that we the people like that didn't include people that weren't white i mean no. it just didn't but you know the whole element of uh, three-fifths of a person so they could yeah. count their slaves in terms of representation of government that's also insane yes so hey like hey we can you know, why don't why don't we use our slaves as part people so we can get more representatives in our government i mean who who even thinks of, of that know. like that is so absurd and dismissive and demeaning but you know or even that law that uh, I can't remember when it was. There was a law that was passed to where slave owners could, and as a way to keep their slaves in line, they could you could kill a slave yeah. in the process of punishing them for whatever they didn't do right, and <laughs> and you were that was okay. Yeah, there was nothing they could do to you. You would not go to jail for that. And these days you can go to jail if you kick a dog, but mm-hmm. you could kill a black person. It was no biggie. Yeah, that's just crazy. And I mean, it seems so. It also seems so. Um, 
redundant and silly to sit here and say that slavery was silly. Does it, when I say that, like, I, like it makes me want to, like, okay, now I need to make some art because I'm just speaking in. I'm just speaking in. You general. said slavery, slavery was silly. Is that what you said? Well, I'm just saying it's silly to say slavery was insane. I feel like oh, like 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 <laughs> like to even to say it, like it makes me want to make a piece of art rather than yes, just speak about it the way I'm speaking about it now. It just you know what I mean? It yeah. just seems weak it's to too just huge. say yeah it's yeah. way too big to just sort of glibly say well of course it's insane it's insane yeah so yeah so conversations like we're having right now um make me it's just makes me want to go make some work yeah and i would really encourage i haven't dug into it too deep yet but i know that the new york times just came out with the 1619 project yeah. and i think yeah, yeah. that's super important if you want to get educated about slavery and the first ship that came over here in 1619 from Angola with 20 slaves, and yeah. that's where it all started. And I think, um, I don't want to spoil anything, but I think people should pay attention to the name of the first ship. Oh, I don't know. I like, don't know if I caught that. Just dig into it and see okay. that. Um, and also dig into it and see the name of the last slave ship. Just, all right. Just do a little research and go find those things, because it's, it's interesting. Um, well, let's finish... Uh, maybe talking about some things that are coming up for you. You have okay. your uh, your images being used on the poster for the next Texas Book Festival that's happening soon, and that's that's a club with a lot of other awesome artists that have come before you. Yeah, for sure. that's a huge honor. Um, I had done a so DJ Stout, one of my design heroes. He's running the Texas office of Pentagram. He worked at uh, Texas Monthly forever. Um, just a huge design hero of mine. Anyway, found me on Instagram. Started yeah. following me. That in the, that in and of itself was kind of a, right. an a celebration. Awesome yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh my God, I texted all my designer friends like, can you believe this? Um, and then he reached out to me and, and asked me if, to do a Pecha Kucha. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's like, okay, that's crazy. But uh, yes, I'll do it. You know, DJ asked me to do it. I'm going to do it. So... Doing that opened up all these doors, and he happens to be, Pentagram happens to be the office that creates all the graphics for the last several years mm. for the Texas Book Fest. Nice. So he sends me an email saying, and he didn't, it wasn't a question, it was, this has happened. Yeah. He sends me an email <laughs> saying, hey, by the way, I just wanted to let you know, um, we're using one of your landscapes for the Texas Book Festival poster. Yeah. I'm like, Oh, all right. <laughs> like, like, what am I going to say? No, no, no. I refuse. I actually take it off the poster. I refuse. Yeah. No, but, so I was thrilled. Um, and he said that, you know, they had all like what happens every year is everybody brings in suggestions, but he's got enough clout to go, nah, we're going to, we're going to go with Dave. Yeah. Yes. Nice. So it's such a cool thing. And so, yeah, one of my landscapes is the poster and the lists of artists that have been on, you can go to their website and look at the past posters. It is like a who's who of yeah, illustrators. It, and absolutely. Designers. And the fact that I'm one of those people now mm-hmm. is truly mind-boggling. Yeah. Super, super happy about it. And um, so there's going to be – I'm going to be giving an artist talk, like a little 45-minute oh, talk really? about my work oh, cool. um, the Saturday during the festival. I get to go to the gala and Hobnob, so that'll be fun. Nice. They're using some of my pieces to decorate the gala, so I can't wait to see what that oh, looks like. Oh, sweet. And um, I just found out the other day, um, I'm going to go over there and, uh, earlier on Saturday and just sort of, uh, as people want to buy the poster, I'm going to sign the poster. Like, I didn't design it, but my art's on it. 
Yeah. So, but uh, so that'll be kind of a fun little moment. Um, I think that's like is that the twenty sixth, twenty seventh of yeah, October? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so that's kind of crazy. And in a weird coincidence, I'm showing just the landscapes on their own, which I've never done before. Uh, starting in October, running through the first weekend of East Austin, which will bookend, which will you know totally encompass the the book festival of the landscapes. So while the the landscape yeah, pieces yeah. on the poster, also I'm showing, um, I believe it's eight pieces at um, Atelier Twelve O Five with artist uh, uh, Laura Cathy. So so it's a two person show. But the idea that I'm showing these landscapes at the same time this poster thing is happening, yeah, that's really cool. It's Kind you know I couldn't have planned that better. So those two yeah. things are happening, and Laura's been on the podcast too. No, yeah, yeah. I listened. I listened to her. I told her that the other day <laughs> when we were installing our show um, Monday night. I told her that I that I listened to the podcast and it made me. Um, I was like, it made me like you more. Oh, cool. You know what I mean? Like, because I'd hung <laughs> That's out. That's a great compliment. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 you know, I'd, I'd hung out with the both of you. But to hear that conversation, I was like, "Yeah, I kind of kind of like these people." Yeah, um, that's really cool. So, so that was that was really cool, and and that actually speaks to a thing that um, I don't know if uh, other artists or creatives that might be listening to this podcast like like go out and do stuff because mm. one of the best things I've ever done. The reason I'm sitting here talking to you now is because I went out to shows and I met people and I made friends. Yeah. So you know. So, yeah. So the idea. I just was always such an introvert. Just never. Just always felt like it didn't quite belong. Mm. And I've been going to see shows for a couple of years now. Going to events, and now I've got this group of artist friends that that we see each other, we recognize each other, we hug each other at at, at gallery openings. Yeah. And it's yeah, great. Yeah. It's great that then I can I have folks, creative folks that I can talk about stuff with. So, so yeah, that's that's a, been a really fun thing. Yeah. What about anything beyond that? that you so want to share? I have a show. It's another two-person show at the Davis Gallery, and that's going to happen in May 2020. Nice. And I'll be showing. I'm not quite sure how much wall space. I have a decent idea how much wall space, but I don't know specifically. I'm imagining I'll have room for 10 or 15 pieces, depending on size. Oh, wow. Nice. And I'm using it as a target that I'm I'm only going to show I'm only going to show things that I've never shown before. Mm. So I'm creating at least 15. I'll probably wind up having to create 20 brand new pieces that have never been shown before um because I want that to I want to I don't know it's just I feel like it's a it's a level of respect yeah, to absolutely. the gallery, you know, absolutely. they're they're giving me this wall space. Um so I don't want to put up anything in that gallery that I've put up somewhere else. Yeah. It just feels like no, I gotcha. feels like infidelity somehow. It feels yeah, yeah, like yeah, it feels yeah. wrong. So um so yeah that's I'm really excited about that because you know before I walked in here I was sitting over here at the coffee shop yeah. working on a piece. Oh nice. But before I walked in. So um yeah that's that's gonna be hectic because I had my first solo show in January of this year and that was hectic trying to crank out twenty five brand new pieces. Yeah, at the Doherty. At the Doherty, yeah. So I'm really looking forward to that because it'll be it'll be physical evidence of the evolution of the work in the last that would be what 15 months mm-hmm. roughly like 18 months. Um, so yeah, I'm really excited about that. So, so the, will the Davis show be any of these layered plexi pieces, or that won't be ready by then? I don't think that's going to be ready by then because okay. um, I'm looking at them now and I don't. It's 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 interesting to have different targets of work you're working on right like so i have that in my living room i I built this rudimentary frame and i've got some plexi that i that i have prints on and then i had the the vendor cut them into slices so i can then paint behind them to test yeah what it it looks like 
um, that is still very much the um, experimental the, phase. <laughs> I was going to say experimental phase. Um, but while I'm doing that, I'm also still trying to crank out 15, at least 15 new pieces of of what I've been, you know, sort of the evolution of where things have been going anyway. So, yeah, I've got – and then the landscapes are going on. So, yeah, there's a lot of – plus now there's a day job that I've got to still yeah, create. Yeah, yeah. Design work for clients, so yeah, the my brain is filled with uh, creative things. So that's a, that's a good thing. That's, I'm not complaining about that. Nice. And where you know, I always forget to a- ask this after at the end of an interview. But where where should people go look at your work? Um, they can go to daveMcClinton.com. Uh, mm-hmm. It's just my name, M C C L I N T O N, daveMcClinton.com, and from there, there are links to the Facebook art page, the Instagram account. I might even be known to spout off on Twitter if you wanted yeah. to go. Um, so it's it's all if you go to that website, you can find all those things. But the website would be the primary place to go because not only would you see the art, but you'll see um, current events where I'm showing. You know, you could look at past exhibits and past blog posts to see what I've been up to the last uh, couple of years. And do you want people to check out your graphic design website too? I'm um, sure. Yeah, that's uh, <laughs> that's um, what is that? It's dmdesigninc.com. Yeah, so the, that's where you would see the design work, the the logo work, the poster work. Um, You're so prolific on there. You have then, so many logos. Jeez. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I love, man, I love logos so much. Yeah. I really, really do. It's just such a, to, to have somebody tell you the story of their company, and then you crank out a little postage size, yeah. postage stamp size thing that's supposed to encompass what they do. Is such a cool, challenging thing. Yeah. Um, that um, yeah, I have a ton of logo work, but th- that that's a thing that I hope I'll never have to stop doing. No matter what happens in the art world, I'll always do branding logo work because that's just so enjoyable. Yeah, that actually reminds me of a question I was going to ask you: is Is there not a time where you imagine that you're just going to be doing art? I mean, is that a desire? I don't. I would say that. A goal is um, a little more creative freedom. And I think the way to gain that creative freedom is to have a career that's leaning more on the art rather than client work. Because client work, obviously, there's not that much creative freedom. I'd rather make a living with art and pick and choose design projects. Yeah, I'd rather it flip that way. But yeah, I don't think I'll ever only do art because I just love the other stuff. Again, like I said earlier, not as much, but the love is strong. Okay. The love is strong, so I'll I'll just always do that. Nice. Well, thanks, Dave, for this uh, very I feel like candid conversation. Yeah, thanks for like going I, all the different places. I, I wanted like I to talk too much. I feel like you're gonna have to edit. No. I feel like you have to edit this thing. I hope I didn't say anything stupid. <laughs> <laughs> well, That's I mean, gonna, you can you can edit it out. You can, you know. Well, I don't know. I don't want to edit anything <laughs> out. I want to I want people to hear what we said. But I just you know, it's like a hard. Sometimes it's hard to talk about these things about yeah, race. Yeah, no, and, yeah, it is. And and um, I don't. I haven't had a lot of conversations. Like this, so I don't know how to do it. So I appreciate you being open to letting me try that and just kind of be here with you and try to talk through these things. Well, um, on the other side of it, thank you for uh, giving me the space to talk about it and and having me on your on your podcast because you know what we said earlier. This conversation, I mean, we did get into it. We did Mm -hmm. get into things about race and. And and how we both feel about it and how it affects our lives and the reason we had that conversation was because of art. Yeah, that's, that's cool. That's pretty cool. <laughs> that is pretty cool. 
<laughs> so so yeah, man. Um, I appreciate the time. Thank you. Yeah, and everyone should go out and make some art and absolutely make some things happen and make some conversations. Do happen. something provocative and start an argument. Yeah. Right. Nice. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Dave. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening. One more thing before you go. If this episode or any other I've produced have helped you or added value to your life, please support the podcast so it can continue and grow. Just go to austinarttalk.com forward slash support. There you can find a link to my Patreon page and there is also a PayPal option and an Amazon affiliate link. I couldn't keep doing this without your help. All the best to you and take care.